how are the ideas you have shaping you? One thing I do always say with young people, avoid hyper-competition. A lot of people are drawn to hyper-competition. Yeah, competition's great, but there comes a point where it becomes so competitive that the prize isn't worth the price. Mm. Rory Sutherland is the Vice Chairman of Ogilvy, a senior advertising executive and a man who knows how ideas win. Of politics, and PP may be partly to blame for this, is that the Overton window in national politics is gotcha. really small. Okay. Yeah. So let's take the Liz Truss idea, which is basically not, by the way, He's a columnist, an innovator, and a trailblazer in the world of marketing and advertising. In this podcast, we tackle ideas and how they shape us. I want more than just a piece. Wanna be heard from the west to the east. I worked in my craft and I prayed for my time on the scene. The man have never left my team. 19, learned the right creed. Now I'm not a right breed, but I might be. In my crease, Nike's hit up my G. I'll still never sell out my theme. Well, you know about heritage. You go inherited. Don't chill with the snakes, but the flow's still venomous. Perspective is everything. So much lemonade. I don't know what a lemon is. Right, Rory. Thank you so much for joining us today. Ah, pleasure. I'm delighted. Um, Very convenient for my home as well. Bit of southeast London never goes wrong. I, I uh, always love coming. Yeah, home. we normally get lots of stick from North Londoners who are like, "You're all the way in South," but people who aren't too far away, it's good. Southeast London is actually much more interesting. It's completely misunderstood by the rest of London because it's not on the tube. <laughs> yeah. And Londoners, if you're not on the tube, they can't get their head around it at all. Yeah. But actually, um, I used to learn when I first moved to Seven Oaks, driving home from central London. Uh, yeah. I to, if I, 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 when I was president of the IPA, I'd have things that ended really, really late. Yeah. So I'd just not drink and drive home. And I suddenly realised it's unbelievably fascinating because the mm. contrast, you know, within half a mile of each other, it's a complete roller coaster ride all the mm. way through. And I, I just find it endlessly fascinating. Yeah, I think people who make that tube joke, small-minded, I would say, because London is beautiful, it's big. Bromley is London, you know, Croydon need, is London. We don't need the tube. Anyway, you've got a perfectly good rail network where you travel with dignity above yeah. the ground, as God intended, right, OK? So, um, no, we don't need it. So let, let's start somewhere where I think is, is going to be interesting to people because I've watched a lot of your stuff and the video that uh, we just played now, again, explains a bit about you. But I always, in a lot of videos I've watched, I haven't seen you, you introduce yourself in your own words. So how do you think about the work you do and who who you are like how how would you describe things um the way i've experienced i suppose the last 10 or 15 years and it kind of started a little bit with a joke i told at ted global in edinburgh mm. in 2009 uh, about the eurostar and you know the fact that actually yes you can spend six billion and make the train journey faster but for a fraction of that money you could make the train journey more enjoyable so people don't care how long the journey takes mm. okay um i've just found myself i suppose over the next sort of 14 years just becoming progressively less lonely <laughs> as i realized that the thing i was banging on about feeling a bit like a voice in the wilderness is is actually shared by a whole bunch of people mm. in a whole bunch of related fields not necessarily marketing or advertising but for example in ai there's this thing called the alignment problem there's a book actually called The Alignment Problem by a guy called Brian Christian. And it's a really important concept because the point is that AI can only work on data, mm. which tends to be, not, in, not invariably, but tends to be numerical, okay? And therefore, it will optimise for something mm. which is numerically expressible. 
But that may not be what humans care about. So we had this wonderful discussion with somebody yesterday about, you know, uh, coffee shops and how you optimise the queuing system for coffee shops. And he came up with a fantastic phrase, actually, speed isn't really, um, it's not really a scientific measure, it's a feeling as far as humans are concerned. Mm. So if something feels fast, you're not bothered. I'll give you an example of that. You're not that bothered if you're taking the train in from southeast London to one of the many stations <laughs> served. Um, you're not that bothered if the train keeps moving, but you get really paranoid if the train grinds to a halt. Yeah. And similarly, if the driver explains what the delay is, you're pretty chill. If you're left basically in the dark, you get stressed. And actually, a lot of the time, what happens is we're optimising the world around something that's just convenient to measure. That might be speed or time, for example. Yeah. Okay. And taxis would always look at the question of people don't like waiting for taxis. How mm. can we get minicabs or how can we get cabs to turn up faster? And what Uber did is they effectively created that little Uber map. I always talk about this as an example of genius. Yeah. And the insight there was that what really bothered people wasn't the duration of the wait, it was the degree of uncertainty. Mm. It was not knowing where your cab was, not knowing if the firm had lied to you about, you know, there's one on the way, or yeah. don't worry, he'll be with you any minute. Okay, when you could actually look at the map and go, oh, look, he's over there, he's stuck at those traffic lights, I'll make myself a cup of tea, okay... No, I'm not saying I'm not saying it's acceptable for cabs to take four hours to turn up. I'm not saying there's no correlation between the speed with which a taxi turns up yeah. and your satisfaction as a taxi passenger. What I'm saying is that you're not really optimising for the right thing if you optimise for speed, because what's really bothering people, what's disquieting, is the degree of uncertainty. Mm. And that Uber map is a kind of piece of realignment. Now, the interesting thing is, it's really, really easy to assemble loads and loads of data sets about how quickly taxis turn up. And by the way, you could get a kind of predictive algorithm going, which sends taxis uh, preemptively yeah. to areas where you anticipate high demand to minimise waiting time. It's expensive to do. And also, <laughs> the drivers may not like doing it. Yeah. And thirdly, you need to be of a certain scale before it'll even pay off at all. Whereas the interesting thing with the map is it costs absolutely nothing. It's a bit of GPS and a bit of mapping software. Now, the interesting thing is that we do have loads and loads of data on how long a taxi takes to turn up at a destination. Yeah. Okay. We don't really have data for human uncertainty or the pain of kind of not knowing because we don't have numerical measures for the things that people really care about. And so my concern, which has always been my concern, yeah. is people optimising for the wrong thing. It's an awful lot of time and effort being spent to achieve something which actually people don't care about that much. Yeah. I mean, Concord was, in a way, pretty dumb, because, <laughs> um, to be honest, OK, the westbound journey wasn't totally crazy, Yeah. OK? But the eastbound journey is a total mess. It's much better. If you're going from New York to London, the mm. best way to do it is to fly overnight. OK, the journey takes eight hours, but you're asleep for six of them. Whereas Concord, because it couldn't land at Heathrow at three o'clock in the morning, couldn't really take off from New York, except, if I've got this right, I think it was there was a, there was a departing flight from New York at nine in the morning yeah, and one at 12. That, first of all, means that the Concords were basically sitting on the tarmac unused oh, overnight. Yeah which airlines really hate. But also, you had to stay an extra hotel night in New York, then get up really early, then fly home. Mm. Now, the great thing about an overnight flight, if you're, if you're basically travelling eastbound, is you have a whole day in New York, you go out after the meeting, you have a few jars, yeah. you head off to JFK. Well, Newark is actually better, in my opinion. But anyway... <laughs> um, JFK... 
for for New York, I think JFK is really poor. Yeah, I mean, you'd expect um, build it's a really f- fucking train to the airport. <laughs> You're the richest city in the world. By it's some really measure, odd. Okay? Can't we just have a little train to the airport? And you get stuck on that Van Wyck Expressway. Oh gosh! You know, if you're interested in having a kind of uh, an unscheduled tour of the uh, uh, the victim places of Son of Sam, uh-huh. uh, that's more or less where JFK is. <laughs> uh, it also produced the Ramones, that area of Long Island. It's kind of it is quite interesting. I mean, yeah. it's quite an interesting thing, but. Uh, it is a kind of rubbish airport. Newark is, a, I would argue, Newark's quite a lot yeah. better. I've never been to Newark, but I would imagine anything would be better. Actually, than, it's than crazy JFK. that they don't have a kind of London city airport for yeah. New York, isn't I it? I mean, yes, indeed. Because Toronto has one. Toronto has that little one in an island. Which and is London, just... London City is brilliant. Because yeah, it, when, when, yeah. when that started, I was just like, this is just, this is exactly what we needed. Not Ori. I remember what I'm experiencing now is what I think when I sent one of the podcasts you did to someone I know. Um, the first thing they said was like, how does he know all that stuff? Like, how does he know? Because you, you come out with all these different things. And the reason why I asked you how you think about your work is because what I'm trying to almost find out is, I mean, okay, yes, you know. I, I was puzzling over this today. And yeah. I sort of weirdly, as recently as today, came, my brother's an astrophysicist, okay, okay. mathematician. He was on the British Maths Olympiad team. Um, <laughs> uh, I'm actually surprisingly similar to him, not, although not nearly as good mathematically, in the sense that I'm a bit of a nerd. Okay. Okay. And I'm a nerd who, through weird accident of events, ended up in the creative department of an advertising agency, where, of course, the decisive factor under consideration is human persuasion and perception. Yeah. Okay. So, to be honest, I think there's a parallel universe in which I ended up doing the uh, the scheduling for southeastern trains right. or something very, very nerdy like that. But I ended up applying that same kind of slightly, um, slightly perhaps on the spectrum. Anna's convinced, Anna's just off camera, but Anna's convinced I'm completely on the spectrum, I think. But aren't we all, got, aren't we all on the spectrum? I mean, yeah, well, I mean, and it was fascinating because I, I was talking to a guy... Um, uh, who runs a kind of AI consultancy, one of very few AI consultancies in the UK. And the three of us were there queuing for a buffet meal, okay? Mm-hmm. And the queue was kind of stretching out of the building, okay? Popular, popular buffet. <laughs> and to the, and the other part of the buffet was both, uh, it was basically puddings and cheese, okay? Mm-hmm. But there's no queue for that, obviously, because the queue was for what you might call the main course of the meal. And what was so funny is all three of us simultaneously had the same thought. Okay, let's just reverse the order of our meal. So let's go and eat cheese first. Um, we won't have to queue for the cheese. And then by the time we finished eating cheese, the queue for the main meal would have disappeared. Okay. And it was really funny because all three of us, you know, the AI guy, the kind of logistics guru yeah. from distribution and me, were all of us in the queue basically being pained by this you know, asymmetry. Mm. And so- Hey there, just want to say thank you for listening or for watching uh, this podcast. Uh, we have a great desire to grow this podcast. And one of the ways we're going to do that is if you listening, uh, follow, or if you are watching, you subscribe to the podcast. The faster it grows, um, the more guests we can get, but also the better the podcast gets. So please just do me a favor, hit the subscribe button or the follow button. Um, back to the episode. Oh, I think that... I. I think that's how it came about. I always say, I always say to people, by the way, serious bit of career advice to young folk, try and be good at two things, two things that sort of overlap or at least are not totally unrelated, you know. Yeah. Uh, you know I'm not sure that, you know, watercolour painting and kickboxing, 
you know, I mean, you know, I'm not sure you're necessarily going to find a kind of harmonic link between. Although you never know. Yeah, right? there's a TikTok account okay. for that. I mean, you know, it's 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 almost it's almost worth remembering that um, Neil Spohr, the uh, the genius physicist, uh, also scored a also earned a silver medal playing football for Denmark. I think really might have been his brother, but they were actually he you know he was a serious physicist and a serious footballer. Would yeah. you believe? Um, but I always find two things because. I hate to say this, statistically, okay, you're not going to be the best tennis player in the world. It's just not going to happen. And that's because loads of other people are going to be trying to do the same thing. Yeah. And just by, you know, just by total luck, okay, unless you have every single one of your stars aligned, someone's going to end up better at tennis than you. Yeah. You know, or, by the way, you simply can't be bothered. Right, which is not unreasonable because the price of getting to the top in tennis now is completely ridiculous. Yeah. You know, you've kind of got to sacrifice insane portions of your life. You can't go out and get pissed. You know, you, you can't smoke. You know, there's a wonderful story about this where when you get... One thing I do always say with young people, avoid hyper-competition. A lot of people are drawn to hyper-competition, mm. particularly guys, I think, because they just love this kind of, you know, really tough competitive environment. Yeah, competition's great, but there comes a point where it becomes so competitive that the prize isn't worth the price. Mm. And so the story I always tell about this is John McEnroe, who your older listeners Yeah, I mean, most people don't. Absolutely, you know, they probably know him as a tennis commentator, but he was a very, very brilliant, exciting, irascible, but totally original tennis player in his day. And he got involved in the senior tour of tennis. And when he was on the senior tour, all the young tennis players came up to him. They kept asking him to his complete amusement. So, uh, you know, when you were kind of winning, you know, Masters and Grand Slams, what do you do to keep fit? And John McEnroe said, I played tennis. He said, yeah, 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 obviously, yeah, obviously you played tennis. But, but what did you do to keep fit? You know, did you do some circuit training? Did yeah. you do weights? No, I've just played tennis, you know. And you had a level maybe 20, 30, 40 years ago. I mean, you know, okay, the 1960 Brazil squad or whatever it was, 1970 Brazil squad, and they came off the pitch at half time and half of them lit cigarettes, right? Now now you have this hyper-competition where unless you're supremely talented, supremely fit and supremely lucky, okay, you're not even going to make it. Yeah. So you need all three. That's a high price. And the luck thing is impossible to kind of control. So there isn't really scope for players actually like Gascoigne or Pushkas, a 1950s Hungarian player, yeah. uh, or Babe Ruth, for that matter. Babe Ruth, fat. I mean, the, the, the joke was that the reason he hit home runs is if you hit a home run, you could walk around the bases. <laughs> and he didn't, you know, didn't have to get out of breath, right? Okay. Now, so, so one of the things I would say is if you can be good at two related things yeah. and combine them, you can kind of create a field of, of a specialism of your own, yeah. which is much, much less crowded. This is this is fascinating because we recently released an episode exploring polymathy, and you know, mm. w- which is a lost art. I think. Um, I think it is because um, it, our education system, yeah, over specialises far too soon. Unless you do the baccalaureate, and one of my daughters did the baccalaureate. The only thing I can say about the baccalaureate is it's brilliant, but it's yeah. grueling. They do highs and the exam, the exam thing. So you do exactly you do highs yeah. and lowers. Everybody has to do some sciences, some art subjects. One thing that's by the way a problem with science is in the UK, typically people do three A levels, maybe yeah. four. 
If you want any kind of scientific career, it's basically assumed that all three of those will be a science subject. Yeah. So the reason women historically didn't go into science subjects wasn't actually so much that, that, that they were less keen on science or less good at it. It's that women tended to be less likely to be crap at art subjects. Yeah. You know, there's a certain kind of guy who's very, very good at science and totally rubbish at, you know, Shakespeare or yeah. French, okay? And demanding that people who want to be scientists give up any kind of art subject, you know, whether it's a language, it's whether it's history, person. English, etc., yeah. that, okay, you're a scientist now, so forget about doing any kind of art subject, is a ridiculous decision architecture. Yeah. So this is one really important concept, by the way, from behavioural sciences, choice architecture. How choices are presented to you has a huge effect on what you choose. Yeah. And you know, if your choice is, you know, it was people who are reluctant to do science, not because they didn't want to do science, it was because they didn't want to give up for all time at the age of 15 the chance to study a humanity subject. Mm. And we need to change, you know, we need what we, what we probably need is a science A level, for example. Yeah, I mean, do, you do, know, do, a single do, A level, which basically gives you a reasonable facility. Level everything, and, right? Yeah. Would you, would you, do you think, I mean, I, I also put it down to perhaps the market economy, the fact that. Again, rewards speciali uh, uh, specialization at least at yeah. the bottom tier. I mean, what could we do to almost rediscover or re-energize polymathy? People being good at uh, uh, a wide variety of different things, you know. And also, I mean, it's not everything you do that you have to kind of be paid for, right? So you can also be good at different things, perform at a good level, but not necessarily it become the sole focus well, of it, your day. It, well, it's funny. I mean, I th I would like looking back on it. I like to take a part of the UK, you know, Wales or Kent, yeah, and do an experiment where you completely shake up the first five or six years of uh, the, the years between fifteen and and twenty four. Mm. Okay, so a few things. One, not my own idea, but Roger Martin's. Um, uh, you shouldn't pay any tax on the first sort of £100,000 you earn in your life. So instead of giving people a tax-free allowance every year, OK, it should be upfront weighted because young people need money more than older people. Do. And that's I, cumulative, I, right? I, I, so. Yeah, so, you know, well, you, know you, you might be earning £20,000 a year. For five years, you'd earn £20,000 a year, just to give an example, and you wouldn't pay any tax on any of it until mm. you hit that £100,000 threshold. And I think you should upweight tax breaks to people in early life because being young is more expensive than being old. Hmm. Having kids is expensive. I will will make that point. But as a 56-year-old, once your children have actually left home, you own a lot of shit already, OK? <laughs> you know, I mean, if you gave me £2,000 worth of Dixon's vouchers, I wouldn't really know what to buy, yeah. OK? So, you know, you, you've accumulated a lot of stuff. And actually, it's also cheaper being old because you know what you like, you know? You don't have to try <laughs> all these waste, things. You don't waste you don't, any money. <laughs> every young person has to go to the fucking Reading Festival once. Have you noticed that? <laughs> Nobody ever goes to the Reading Festival a second time. It's this weird rite of passage where you have to do it. And also, when, you, also when you're young, you have loads of social pressure to do things yeah. that other young people want you to do. If you're old, you basically become a grumpy old fart and if you don't want to do something you just don't do it although my yeah. mum still kind of finds a way to get things <laughs> that, that she doesn't need I remember once she came out with like this DVD holder that just kind of spins out and I was like what you do not need this. But is she a QVC fan? <laughs> I, I imagine she might Could be, but yeah, I, I just yeah. didn't get why she had that. Because... My grandmother was exactly the same, <laughs> fun enough. She, 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 she found almost no end of labour-saving devices. 
And um, all credit to her, because this is my very strange family claim to fame. Um, uh, she and her husband, they were the um, fourth family in Wales to own a dishwasher. So uh, that's a good claim to fame, <laughs> though, was, isn't it? Who yeah. was keeping count? That's, that's no, what I wanted to Well, they went into the only <laughs> shop in Wales, which was in Cardiff, gotcha. which sold dishwashers. And it was Howells of Cardiff, I guess. Yeah. And they said, do you sell many of these? And they said, well, they're not selling badly. This is, they're made in New Zealand for a company called Dishmaster. And one of them's actually in the Science Museum, would yeah. you believe it? And the people in Cardiff said, well, not too bad. We've sold two in Cardiff and we sold one in Swansea. <laughs> and that was the sole total in some time in the early 50s of Wales's installed dishwasher bed. Yeah. But, but she was obviously a gadget freak in lots of other ways as well. She was always obsessed with... Um, and I, I've inherited that, undoubtedly. Um, the, the other thing is, I, I suppose, one great thing is that... Um, you know, I tend to be more interested in consumer electronics than I am in, for example, expensive things gotcha. you know, like travel. And consumer electronics is a great hobby to have because um, it just gets cheaper. And the interesting thing about consumer electronics, when you think about it as a market segment, is it's really quite democratic yeah. in that, you know, OK, my brother's an academic and, you know, I earn quite a lot more money in advertising than he does as an academic. And the joke I always make is we, we have exactly the same tech. It's just I get mine three years earlier. <laughs> but actually, you know, there is, you know, when you think about it, there are some surprising facets yeah. that someone on median income in the UK can buy. A, now, we can argue about whether it's the Samsung Galaxy Fold or the iPhone, whatever it is. What are Not they up the to now? the Folds. Are they, are they actually selling these Folds? These folds? Well, I, I desperately want one. Really? About, you know, just I, to I, play with, I imagine. Not to use. Use. Well, no, no, because I'm the old. Phone? I'm, okay. I'm, the phones are too damn small. You see, I'm 56, so I've got this bloody long side. And my this, this is the right size, is it? Yeah, that that, that, <laughs> that would be my phone. If, I, if in, a, in a world designed by me, my phone would be that size, and you'd simply have a large Baker-like receiver attached to it to make the call. But my kids come up to me, you see, and I suddenly realised I couldn't understand why my kids did everything on the phone. And then it occurs to me the little buggers are like 21 years old, gotcha. and they've got fantastic nearsight. And they come up to me and go, Dad, have you seen this on TikTok? And they hold the phone two inches from my eyes. And all I can see is this sort of coloured blur. They could be showing me a kaleidoscope, for all I know, right? <laughs> so that thing, that large iPad. OK, plug a nice Bakelite receiver into that. That's my perfect phone. This, that, yeah. this is a good segue. Let's talk about young people. Because yeah, 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 absolutely. So but, to that point about shaking up the first five, five yeah. or six years. Second thing... Uh, if you've paid, if you've worked for a few years mm. and you've paid tax for a few years, you should be able to go to university for half price. I love these ideas. I'm, I would vote for you. I mean, I know like PM, the PM job's going. It's, so. going, well, it's only a matter yeah. of weeks. I, I would vote yeah. for you if that's that's that's. You, you know, for example, you know, um, not everybody yeah. forcing people to go to university as soon as they leave school when they may not know what they want to do. OK, you know, I, I, I'm not claiming for a second I had an underprivileged background. I went to what was previously a grammar school, but it had become a private school. I was in a pretty rich part of South Wales. I'm not claiming, you know, I come from, you know, the valleys or anything like that. But even so, you know, when I was, you know, if, if you live in, you know, I hadn't, if somebody had said to me, for example, at the age of, say, 18, you know, I'm thinking of working in banking. Right? Yeah. I would have said, you know, what do you want to sit behind a glass screen with a fucking pen on a chain for? You know, I had no idea that things like investment banking existed yeah. even as a sort of you know re you know relatively privileged person um back in what 1984 you know people people's urge to go and work for a bank and bear in mind i suppose this was before the big bang yeah but it struck me as completely bizarre and so th th there is this interesting thing which is allowing people to go and find out what they want to do and then say okay now i know what i want to do so i want to study this yeah 
and then giving them a discount on university education if they attend later in life. So you break that social norm. So what happened when they expanded the universities, okay? It used to be, well, when my father went to university, it was like 2% of the population. Yeah. When I went, I guess it was about 15, may, 15, maybe 18%. Now it's 50%. What they didn't notice was the problem, okay, which is when I went to university and when my dad did, having a reasonable degree was ne was sufficient to get a good job, but it wasn't necessary. Yeah. Okay. Now, because 50% of people go to university, it's become necessary but not sufficient. Yeah. You know, and we have this weird problem in Ogilvy because we, we have this thing called the pipe. Um, which I'll happily plug to all your listeners, <laughs> which is deliberately a non-graduate recruitment scheme. Now, Super. we obviously don't refuse people. If you've got a degree, we don't sound terribly sorry. We don't want you. you okay? <laughs> it simply m makes the point that we don't demand a degree to take people on because our argument is, you know, 50% of the talent out there you know, just, I mean, there's an awful, an awful lot of hugely talented people who just don't like dealing with abstract problems. Yeah. And what we select for our educational system is people who've got a real appetite for abstraction. And what I realised when I first went into advertising is they're people who exhibit many of the signs of genius, mm. okay, but who, if you give them a real-world problem, they'll solve it brilliantly. But if you say, I want you to write 2,000 words on the Peloponnesian walls, okay, they go, what's the point? They're not wrong, by the way. I've been being honest about it, OK? And so there's a certain number of people who love abstractions, a certain yeah. number of people just don't see the point. The people who don't see the point of abstraction aren't necessarily wrong. They're certainly not unintelligent. They've just got a different mindset and a different motivation. And throwing away, you know, 50% of the talent base of the country simply because they're not very good at performing proxy academic exercises as a kind of very, very inaccurate IQ test, yeah. if you like, is a mistake. But then we have this weird problem, which is occasionally we offer a job on this non-graduate programme to someone who has got a degree. And they say, oh, I've got a real problem taking this job. And you go, well, why? It's a perfectly good job. It's well paid. And there's nothing to stop you going from this job right to the top of Ogilvy, OK? Yeah. OK, no, I mean, four years, five years into your job, no one gives a shit what degree you've got or what degree class you've got or anything Indeed. else. Right? You know, your degree has a kind of half-life. It gets you the interview and it gets you the, the, the head start, the springboard. Yeah. Four or five years on, people just say, who did you work for? What That's did you one. do? What did you do? OK? Absolutely. Um, and so... These people then say, well, I don't want to take the job because I've just spent 27 grand getting a degree. And if I've spent 27 grand getting a degree and I end up in a job that doesn't require a degree, I feel I've wasted my money. Hmm. Now, that's kind of rather telling because it suggests people are spending £27,000 a year to get a degree class job. Now, the correct answer would be thanks to what I learned at the University of X, right? I was able to get this job at Ogilvy which will now pay me good money going forward. Yeah. That's what I, but instead, people are seeing it as credentialism. I just need a bit of paper. You know, and that's, that's completely the wrong approach to education because we've just created an expensive hurdle that one. you have to jump yeah. in order to get a starting job. I mean, one other way you could do it, which bizarrely, okay, given what they are, I write for the spectator fortnightly. You wouldn't necessarily expect what is known as a fairly right-wing publication to do this. But when they started recruiting interns, they started recruiting blind. Yeah. And they said, OK, no, we're not going to look at people's degrees, they're where they went to school, all that bollocks. We're going to set them an exercise, writing an interesting article on something, mm. and we're going to choose on that first. Now, if we can't decide between one essay and another essay, then we might look at their educational qualifications as a tiebreaker, but it's not going to be the first filter... 
And the first person they hired as an intern, once Fraser Nelson introduced that blind recruitment, was actually a single mum aged something like 45. <laughs> OK? It was completely opposite of yeah. the, you know, posh person with a Russell Group uh, uh, English degree that you, you'd previously have expected. So that's another thing companies could do, is basically go, right, we're going to set people re realistic exercises, yeah. which are a measure of real talent. And then if we can't decide between five people, we'll use their degree and their... their past education as a bit of a tiebreaker yeah but it shouldn't be it shouldn't be the first hurdle absolutely yeah i i i totally agree with you I'm, this I, is what i mean about shaking up the yeah, whole yeah, path yeah. dependency of of early stage I, life i speak at length all the time about the need to shake up education i'm one of the people yeah. that studied these i guess you, you call it proxy something right i mm. did politics philosophy and economics i did the masters in philosophy so you know, I'm out there wondering and thinking. There are too many PPE graduates in politics, by the way. I'm totally happy about yeah, yeah, PPE. Yeah, yeah, there is, yeah. I, it's a good, I mean, mm. here's the thing. I think it's a really good, and I really do want to fly the flag because I was also one of those weird kids that at 13 was a youth MP and young mayor and that kind of stuff. And I, I kind of look back and I'm a bit ashamed of some of the stuff I was doing. I was there like pretending I was an MP and all, all these weird things. Something was wrong, but that's another podcast. Um, but one thing I will say is, Politics remains, I think, one of the best ways to change the reality of so many people um, for good. I've got a vague theory that if you really want to make a difference to people, yeah. you actually go into local government. I agree. I, I've often wondered about that, which is that if, if, if central government gave local government more autonomy to experiment, yeah. okay, what would happen is... You'd actually learn so much. You know, you'd have a Kent council which had, which, for example, hated money, mini roundabouts, yeah. and you'd have another council which hated traffic lights. You know what I mean? And you'd you'd actually learn through just diversity of experimentation, and and you could do, you know, you could do. I mean, this is why I'm I'm actually in favour of of localism to a degree. Yeah. So many of the problems are actually specific to a place. I agree, but, I mean, but don't you think at, at a certain stage, because if you think about it this way, we've got a pot of, a pot of resources, central government turns the, the tap, if you like, a bit, and, and a bit, you know, kind of goes to local government, and they use that, and the argument is to, to turn the tap, but, but from history, once you turn that tap, you have to keep turning that tap, yeah. because essentially, yeah. the local government says, we want more, we want more. I think devolution, case in point, I think it's actually one of the worst legacies that Tony Blair left, actually. It was, really, wasn't it? Um, yeah. And so, in my, in my head, I do wonder if, if whilst I also believe in local government, I was a member of the Greenwich, Greenwich Young People's Council for two years, I still think that at some, at some level, being part of central government, turning, if you like, you know, the, the levers of power towards, you know, a kind of ordinary... I, think, I still think politics is worthwhile, even though it's been sullied by lots of bad politicians. I still think it's a worthwhile thing to, to, to the do. The thing that puts me off politics, and PP may be partly to blame for this, is that the Overton window in national politics is gotcha. really small. Okay. Yeah. So let's take the Liz Truss idea, which is basically not... By the way, not... It's not entirely insane. It was treated as if it was lunatic, OK? But there is some evidence that there is a kind of Laffer curve and that actually by reducing the taxation rate, you increase the amount of tax taken. That, there, is, there is some evidence that that happens. But if you want economic growth, the idea that the way you create economic growth is by reducing the tax rate by 1% is a very ill-targeted way of growing the economy. Yeah. All I would have liked is a, is a wider discussion. For example, OK, I've got a vague hunch that what you should actually do is you should tax people at a higher rate and then have an annual rebate 
which depends on economic circumstances, okay? Yeah. And there are two reasons for that. One of which is that um, if you want to win electoral support, tax cuts are actually quite bad because three years on, nobody notices them anymore. Mm -hmm. They just get used to the new normal. That's why companies have a bonus, okay? There's, there's a, you get a salary and there's an annual bonus. And so this would enable you to say, if you have something like COVID, you wouldn't expect a bonus. Yeah. If you have, you know, fairly good economic figures, then the tax rebate will be larger. So, and actually, funny enough, Americans sort of do this informally. They choose to. They slightly overpay tax so that when they submit their tax return. Now, secondly, giving people a lump sum... Uh, encourages spending, I suspect, and in a in a different way to yeah. simply reducing people's monthly uh, or weekly rate of taxation. It enables poorer people to get their hands on a chunk of money simultaneously yeah. if you do it right, which is very different to just giving them a kind of Chinese water torture drip feed of benefits. I can see lots and lots of ways in which the other one is that you could also, with a rebate, you could encourage people who don't need it. You could put social pressure on people who don't need it to donate it to the NHS. Yeah. Okay? Now, I'm never going to write a cheque to the NHS, but if, uh, well, you know, now my kids have left home. I wouldn't have done this, when, you know, when I had kids at home or when I, you know. But now my kids have left home. If the government said to, said to me, you know, if you don't really need this fuel payment... Yeah. Uh, you can so, I mean, before you receive your fuel payment, we just encourage people who don't need it to donate it to the National Health Do you think Service. other people would do the same thing? Well... It, it all depends. Um, okay, it does encourage. It does force left-wing people. If you had some badge where you could go to a website and check who donated, it does force left-wing people to put their money where their mouth is. Hey there, just want to say thank you for listening or for watching uh, this podcast. Uh, we have a great desire to grow this podcast, and one of the ways we're going to do that is if you listening uh, follow. Or if you are watching, you subscribe to the podcast. The faster it grows, um, the more guests we can get, but also the better the podcast gets. So please just do me a favor, hit the subscribe button or the follow button. Um, back to the episode. Oh, gosh. Because I know a hell of a lot of people. socialists are shaken. In, in that, but there's, there's another distinction, which is persuasion, yeah. okay, is in many ways better than legislation and better than economic incentives. And the reason yeah. is that. The great thing with persuading people to do something is that if they've got a good reason not to do it, they don't have to do it. They escape from social opprobrium. Now, I'll, I'll give you an example of this, OK? No one would expect someone with three kids who's a bit skint to give their tax rebate to, to donate it, OK? People with no kids who earned a stack of a lot of money and were living mortgage-free in a house, their friends could reasonably pressurise them to give something. And so it takes account of persuasion and what you might call social pressure, takes account of individual circumstances in a way that economic measures and legal measures tend not to do. They tend to be broad brushed and fairly crude. I'll give you, I'll give you my favourite example of this. It's a bit weird, but bear with me. I always thought it'd be a really good thing, okay, just for the environment, if people put their washing machines and dishwashers and tumble dryers on late at night rather than in the middle of the day. Because you know, on a good day with a lot of wind, the UK at sort of 10 o'clock at night is kind of powered by renewables. So the amount of actual additional carbon you're pumping into the air, if you put your tumble dryer on at 10.30, it's a mixture of probably French surplus nuclear power combined with a bit of wind power or whatever, OK? Now, it's just a, it's just a better thing. You know, your, your dishwasher is kind of nuclear powered at 10 o'clock at night, OK? Now... 
the way government approaches things is it tries legislation first, it tries economic incentives second, and then only when those two fail does it try asking <laughs> people nicely. Now, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with, edu- with, with, with uh, legislation or with economic incentives, but that's the wrong order. You should see what people are prepared to do voluntarily and then legislate where necessary. Now, the example would be, if you said, OK, uh, it's illegal to put your uh, dishwasher on except after 10pm 10, 10 or your tumble dryer, Okay, the first thing you're going to have happening is that London Fire Brigade are going to go bananas because some people work nights, and the last thing the fire brigade want is people leaving the house with the tumble dryer on. Yeah. Okay. Because um, it's going to cause fires. Yeah. Okay. So the great thing with persuasion, you can say if it's of no inconvenience and you're at home and all this is happening and there no likewise washing machine. Okay. One in ten people is going, to, or one in twenty people is going to have a washing machine which is directly above their ne- their neighbour's bedroom, right? And it's going to hit the sodding spin cycle at two o'clock in the morning and wake them up. Those people have a perfectly good reason. Now, if you fine people for using electricity during the day, you're inadvertently or unintentionally punishing the guy who works nights or the girl who works nights, and you're you're punishing the person whose neighbour has a bedroom underneath your kitchen. Yeah. Okay. The great thing with persuasion is it's an exhortation to do something if, unless you have a good reason not to. And that results, I think, in more intelligent behaviour. There's a great book, actually, which I really recommend. I, I, it might have been part of your PP course, <laughs> called Seeing Like a State by a guy called James C. Scott, who's like a kind of anarchist anthropologist. But he makes this really interesting point that the very nature of being a large, centralised, controlling entity forces you to see the world in a very weird way because in order to make the world comprehensible, there's too much detail out there for you to actually understand. So to make the world comprehensible, you start dealing in in words of generalisations and averages, Okay, And, you you know, you start basically focusing on a a single representative agent, as economics does. Yeah. And actually... You know, more and more as people get richer, by the way, people are hugely different in their tastes. You know, they're hugely different in, you know, their circumstances. This is my point that it seems weird to me, okay, that the tax code doesn't treat young people favourably because it's simply more expensive being young because you don't own anything yet, okay? It also strikes me as really weird that the tax code doesn't differentiate between someone who earns, well, let's take that 45% tax rate, okay? What what might have seemed a bit weird to you at the last uh, the last election is the Labour Party I think had a policy of was it fifty percent tax above eighty thousand pounds a yeah. year yeah well, yeah high rate tax yeah now the weird thing was weirdly that went down electorally like a cup of cold sick didn't it it didn't win them the support you'd expect well they had other issues but yeah well no no they did have <laughs> other issues yeah no but but part of it was you see that. There's a huge difference between someone who earns, you know, £150,000 a year every year and has done for 10 years. There are a hell of a lot of people who are going to earn £80,000 a year for the last three years of their working life. Most people in London are probably in London because they aspire to earn £80,000 a year one day. Yeah. OK? And so although only a minority of people currently at any one snapshot moment earn £80,000 a year... The number of people who are hoping to do so at one point in their life is quite high. A hell of a lot of people may may have one year of their life where they just earn much more money than they do in other years. Yeah, Imagine you've worked your way up through teaching and eventually for the last two years of your working life you become a headmaster, OK? 
Now, the tax system doesn't distinguish between people who earn, you know, £150,000 year on year and people who earn £150,000 once. Yeah. If it made that distinction, you could tax people very differently, Absolutely. I think. And yet, now... The only reason it doesn't is probably there used to be something in the United States where uh, where where previous year's income could be kind of rolled over or something. Yeah. In other words, not every year was a watertight compartment. I think they got rid of it, but it shouldn't be. I mean, it shouldn't be difficult because technology makes much more sophisticated forms of taxation relatively possible. Okay, you know, an awful. It's rather like the train season ticket. Okay, I mean, the season ticket is in an age of flexible working is obviously a totally stupid product yeah. as is the car park season ticket okay the solution i think is by the way a kind of amazon prime thing where you know i'd pay southeastern trains you know 300 a year and you get like 25 percent off every ticket that's a sensible way to make it yeah. work okay but the season ticket exists really because that was all all that was technically possible During in time. 1861 okay <laughs> You know, I mean, we have been unbelievably slow to rethink pricing in line with progress in, in fact, yeah. in, in charging technology. I, I think policy in general, government policy just lags behind um, just thinking, to, 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 well, to be quite frank. I'll, but, I'll but, give you a frank idea, OK? Yeah. If you really want to boost the economy, really simple idea. It's biblical, too, if you're interested. Okay? Oh, good. Uh, basically, uh, you pay off people's credit card debt. Hmm. Now, a lot of people would say it's unfair because they'd say, oh, I never got into debt. But the <laughs> thing is with credit card debt is uh, people with credit card debt are being unfairly penalised with ludicrously high interest rates compared to people who can use mortgage debt to finance their lifestyle. Yeah. Secondly, paying off credit card debt really hurts the banks and, and at no extra cost. Thirdly, these people have a proven record in spending too much. <laughs> so if you give them some money, it's going to actually flow back into the general economy. That's the one. OK? If you give middle-class people money, they'll squander it by saving it or by just bidding up property prices. Mm. So, I mean, the weird, thing about, the weird thing about politics is it seems only to have room for about two ideas at the same time. You know, yeah. there's like high taxation, low taxation, high public spending, low public spending. And, and now there are ideas like Georgism, which mm. strike me as eminently sensible and interesting. And yet they go nowhere. Mm. I, do, I do wonder, though, I mean, you're, you're definitely helping me think about um, about kind of how forceful government can be. I've always said, if I ever go into politics, one, I think I have to kind of have a vision or something and like, you know, the kind of outer body spiritual experience. I think that's the only reason I would ever really subject myself to that. Because I just think business, I think through business, you can do, do a lot of good, mm. you know, but, but I still think the government and, 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 and politics is, 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 um, is undefeated in just the scale and the kind of legacy you can leave of change and things I, like I that. Also feel, I also feel slightly resentful, I think, towards certain business sectors because the, thing I, the sector I feel most resentful for, towards, by the way, is, you know, two things, OK, that where market forces don't work very well. Yeah. Education, health, mm. OK? You know, it's not as if the US, which pumps an insane amount of money into health, enjoys much better life outcomes. Yeah, I mean, they don't. It's, they it's, don't, it's, it's, OK? It's, it's not good so, you know, but there's, there's something there that's, you know, that, that means that different rules need to apply. The third one is property. <laughs> I, I, I don't think, you know, because, OK, let's look at this behavioural thing, OK? Um, nearly everybody who gets on the property ladder, what they do is they go, how much money can we scrape together? How, that's our deposit, if we if we can manage it, OK? How much money can we borrow, mm. OK? And then they look to the maximum amount they can borrow and scrape together, and they start looking for properties at that price. 
So as soon as interest rates go down, people are just going to start looking at £500,000 homes <laughs> rather than £400,000 homes, which doesn't mean they get a better house because the £400,000 house now costs £500,000, yeah. OK? You know, it's a, you know, in a market of scarcity, all you're doing when you drop interest rates is bidding up these asset prices, OK? Yeah. Now... It seems fairly obvious to me that the Georgists had it right and that we should actually tax, you know, unimproved land value. Mm. And we, we, there needs to be some sort of tax on property at that level. Because otherwise, it, you know, there's a little bit working in kind of consumer capitalism where you go, you look at the extent to which some... If you work for Samsung, right, you look at the extent to which televisions have become both better and cheaper, OK... It's a spectacular achievement. I yeah. mean, you know, you can go out and kind of casually buy a television which, you know, uh, I mean, the richest person in the world couldn't afford in 1990, pretty much, OK? Possibly even later than that, OK? You know, it's a miracle, right? Now, all that seems to have happened in my adult lifetime is the money people have saved on fantastic televisions, on low-cost airlines, on all the innovations of capitalism has just got swallowed up by property prices. Yeah. All the gains from dual-income households basically ended up getting sw swallowed up by property it's ridiculous, prices. ridiculous, really. Okay? And it's a bit like that half-serious, half-joking comment about the Indian economy, which is the only problem with the Indian economy is that if GDP grows by 10%, the excess will just be spent on even bigger weddings. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? I, I relayed that. It's not mine. Don't shoot the messenger, OK? But I relayed that to a friend of mine who was Indian, and he said, I've just got married, he said, and let me tell you, that's not even funny. <laughs> okay. um, but you, you know what I mean? You know, there are certain things. Yeah. You know, and in India, it's weddings. In England, it's, it's housing. Where the rules for spending are as much as we can. Yeah, now, it's, it's, if we all bought cars the way we bought houses, which is how much money can I get together? And then what's the most I can afford to borrow before I hit starvation? <laughs> right? We'd all be driving around in Aston Martins, wouldn't we, right? OK? But it's only... We don't do this with cars. We go, well, there's a trade-off between how much I drive, how much utility I'll get out of an Aston Martin. You know, it is so I, you know, I only really use it to go to the shops. But nobody does that with housing because, it, as Marx would say, its investment value now dwarfs its use value. Yeah. And so we just see it as it's basically your one chance to get rich tax free. So you bet the farm on that. Mm. And now, young people, a bit of advice to your younger listeners, right? One of, one of the up, solutions. Listen up, folks. Listen up. <laughs> okay, listen up, young people. Okay. There is a solution, okay, which is for young people to make suburbia cool. Oh, no. Okay. Because at the moment, we, you know, it's really fashionable to live in Shoreditch. I'm never quite sure. I'm never quite sure. When I go to Shoreditch, because I'm 56, half of me goes, this is really, really cool. God, look at the artisan coffee places. And half of me is going, it's a bit of a shithole. Why can't they clear up that graffiti? You know? <laughs> but, but if you could make Bromley cool, OK, you could actually, you know, so you, know, you could solve... Because uh, uh, I always say to my younger, uh, you know, my younger staff, OK, well, actually, you know, now you've only got to commute in two days a week, right? You could actually get a pretty nice flat in Seven Oaks, mm. okay? You know, two-bedroom flat in Seven Oaks. You know, the, the last time I looked, you, you could get one for the the high two hundred thousands, okay? Yeah. Now you know, in, I mean, in London, you had to pay twice as much as that for Dennis Nielsen's old flat, for <laughs> God's sake, right? You know, and that had a bloody serial killer living in it. <laughs> now, <laughs> right? So, 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 
It did. It was a lovely estate agent's note, by the way, when it came up for sale. It said, "Prospective buyers are advised to research the history of the property," <laughs> which I thought, okay, right, I, I thought was a nice way of wording it. Okay. <laughs> anyway, um, but but you could, you know, um, actually. One of my questions I'm asking at the moment is this assumption among all economists, all futurologists, that the future is urbanisation, the future is agglomeration, uh, the future is high-density housing, high-rise housing. Has kind of Zoom and the pandemic kind mm. of proved that as an unsafe assumption? Absolutely. Because, OK, it used to be, well, the trouble is you move out to Brighton, you spend half your bloody disposable income on a season ticket. Well, if you've only got to travel in two days a week and one of those two trips you can do on an off-peak train, not quite the same problem. Yeah. OK? Now you're getting five days by the seaside in exchange for two days of commute when you used to be getting two days by the seaside in exchange for five days of commute. It makes total sense. It's just fascinating how quickly the world is changing, mm. right? And, and, and politics, as you said, is... It's just, Clearly struggling. I mean, to keep Goldman up. Sachs wants everybody back in the office, but then if you look at, in, at banking, about forty yeah. percent of investment is in commercial real estate. Yeah. So, surprise, surprise, they're quite keen for the office. I do wonder how people will react to that. I mean, I saw the the, the announcement by Apple as well, saying they wanted their staff to come in um, four days a week, I believe, and obviously they they kind of what to work in that enormous donut. Yeah. <laughs> you have to say, by the way, that an enormous donut on two stories is about the least practical form of office design you could have, wouldn't you? Because you want to go and see somebody in a different department. It's like a two-mile walk. Yeah, it's good for your health. No, I you, suppose, yeah, you can, walk, you can cut across. Close your Apple rings as yeah, well. Yeah, true. So. Oh, that's true. You can close a few <laughs> rings. Yeah. A point on society, because I, I do wonder if a lot of the policies you're talking about would work in a more kind of communitarian... By the, by the way, I think it's great. Okay, economically, two questions no yeah. one's asking. They're asking, are employees more efficient if they work remotely? Yeah. My question as an advertising guy is, if, okay, if employees become, let's say, 10% less efficient, yeah. but they have significantly more disposable income because they're spending less money on housing and transportation, the economy could still benefit overall, Okay. It's Henry Ford sort of created the two-day weekend because he realised that with a two-day weekend, it was worth people buying a car. So one question I ask our clients is not just, do you want your employees to work remotely? Wouldn't it be better if your customers could? Because they're going to have more money. Mm. I mean, during the pandemic, there were people who saved a stack of money, really, because everything Amazon. you spent money on was a discretionary purchase. Yeah. Whereas... If you look at, okay, if you look at my younger staff, 50% of after-tax income goes in transportation and housing. Mm. But, you know, you've paid your tax, then your buy-to-let landlord takes a great bite out of it, then transport for London takes a bite out of it, and you're left, you know, having a takeaway curry on Friday to celebrate your, your week of work, you know. Mm. It's... And so, so, you know, the other thing is um, whether people moonlighting and having side hustles, mm. okay, it's bad for the employer potentially, might be great for the economy as a whole, OK? If one in 20 or one in 50 of those people who's currently kind of working another job on the side starts a worthwhile business, we're probably better off. So, you know, it's, it's that old complexity theory thing. You've got to optimise for the system, not for the parts. Mm. And currently we're looking just to optimise for individual worker productivity under two circumstances. And we're not looking at the effect of, for example, people having more disposable income. But, okay, you're from Manchester, aren't you? Okay. Well, South East London, but I, sp I did a stint in Manchester. Oh, you did a stint in Manchester. Yeah. Got better cars up north. Do you notice that? It's because their houses aren't so bloody expensive. 
Nice houses as well. Yeah, yeah, no, it's not. I mean, actually, you know, you start with, you know, it's also not like when I was 20. Okay, I'll be honest with you. I went to Manchester when I was about 23. I thought it was shit. That wasn't the last time, was it? No, no, no. I've been loads of times since. Okay, good. I now go, I'm envious, right? I go to Newcastle, I'm slightly envious. I go to Bristol, I'm slightly envious. And you do get a reverse thing, which is that when you have lower property prices, you get more creativity. Yeah. Because people can afford to experiment. And, you know, really, really high rent costs. Um, so you, you, one of the weirdest things, like I go to East Kent quite a lot, and you get these people from sort of Michelin-starred London restaurants, and they take over kind of a derelict pub in Kent. And you go, well, why are they doing this? And then you realise, well, actually, you can actually make some money yeah, that way. something special. And also, you can, if, you, if you're a chef, you can experiment. You know, if you open in Mayfair, there's only about one kind of restaurant you can open, isn't there? Which is an expensive, posh restaurant. Yeah. That's basically what you're doing. On the other hand, you see, if you go and open in Margate, right, you can try something completely different. And you can afford to take those risks because your overheads aren't so high. Mm. East Berlin, you know, the, the, the whole of Berlin was trans, you know, transformed into a kind of creative centre uh, once, once the wall came down because there was huge access to cheap property. Yeah. You know, if you wanted to start, I mean, you know, some weird, well, I mean, not, not difficult. Germans don't need much encouragement to start a really weird bar, do they? But, I mean, if you wanted to try something like that, you know, I, mean, I remember sitting in a bar at about one o'clock in the morning where there was an enormous welded metal dragon above the bar which would periodically spew flames over your head. OK, <laughs> now, you don't get that in London because they spend all the money on paying off the Duke of Westminster. Oh. <laughs> right? <laughs> I don't know, no, no, no. But this Henry George thing, this Henry George thing, nobody knows about it, but once you read it, it yeah. it's where Monopoly, the, the biggest legacy of Georgism was the game of Monopoly, which was supposed to teach people how bad extractive rent-seeking my landlords was. But instead, a bit like loads of money, people took it the wrong way. It's fascinating, because I, yeah. I play Monopoly... And I become the most unscrupulous bastard. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and I'm yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Is this mm. what I would be like as a homeowner? Because, mm. like, you know, you know, I'm always talking about, you know, we need to protect uh, uh, the you rights know, renters, of tenants. And we need and to, yeah. <laughs> and then I, I, I get, I get four properties, or I get a set, and it's, you know, I'm making it rain, and you know, and, and, and I'm, and I'm just everyone hates me, but I'm like, I don't care. I have the property, and I'm fine. Hey there, just want to say thank you for listening or for watching. Uh, this podcast. Uh, we have a great desire to grow this podcast. And one of the ways we're going to do that is if you listening, uh, follow, or if you are watching, you subscribe to the podcast. The faster it grows, um, the more guests we can get, but also the better the podcast guests. So please just do me a favor, hit the subscribe button or the follow button. Um, back to the episode. So it does give me an insight into that world. The the point I, the, the point I was going to make before, which which I think I, I really want to get your thoughts on, because I think you, you can reflect on how things have changed as well. It's actually a point made by Eric Metatax, Meta, Metaxas um, in the book called Seven Men, where he basically profiles seven great men, as he calls it. And before, he does a, a preamble, which I actually find the most fascinating, fascinating part of the book, where he talks about kind of, he paints a picture against, you know, 1960s in America, yeah. and now, as it were, or recent times. And he speaks about how, you know, in 1960s, uh, you know, a lot of people just kind of believed whatever the official version of things were. They believed yeah. the government. There was a real communitarian spirit about things. And then because of certain, uh, you know, events, Say the Vietnam War, Watergate, whatever it is, people start realizing that hold on, maybe maybe the government and you know and the official version of things, maybe that we actually shouldn't believe them. And then what he says, which I think is so true, is people went from a place of believing everything that was told to mm. them 
to get to get into a place where, where they just deny and are suspicious of everything, right? And so uh, the kind of pessimistic culture where people are, you know, cynical. They're very kind of, you know, they just don't. And of course, anything. the cynical people can all find each other, which is the difference <laughs> in a sense. Exactly. You, you yeah, go on Reddit, yeah. you can find. I mean, you can find a community was, I mean, in some senses, there always was mm. this guy in the pub. You know, I mean, you know, I mean. <laughs> I think every pub had a resident Jeremy Corbyn, right? And every pub had a resident sort of Norman Tebbit figure, okay? And there were one guy in the pub, and they also learned pretty quickly that you don't always talk about the same thing. Yeah. Because, you know, if you start, you know, it's your round, Dave, and you start going on about the violence inherent in the system or the, uh, you know, the, 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 what is it, the interdependent process of social metabolism. Yeah. Or start quoting from Dash Capital. People go, can, can we just tone this down a bit? Yeah. yeah. But, but, <laughs> but when these people can find each other, you get this echo chamber effect. Yeah. There's a very interesting point as well, which uh, listening to the reading this book, actually, I was listening to it uh, called the Align. Uh, no, it's actually called Algorithms to Live By by the same guy Brian Christian, who's kind of AI guy. He says that actually, the very, it, it, well, it isn't just social media; it isn't just mass media. Yeah. The very invention of language messed up human experience. Okay, <laughs> and in Bayesian terms, okay, you know, we have our kind of our prior, yeah. our prior assumption of the probability of something, okay? And it's based on our own experience. Well, that hasn't happened to me very much before, so I won't worry about it. Mm. As soon as you invent language, what people talk about is not, is not representative of everyday experience. In the same way that people's Instagram feeds, they don't show themselves having a poo, right? They don't show themselves... That would break the guidelines. I, I used to do, do <laughs> counter-signalling on my Twitter feed where, I, you know, if I went to Barbados, I wouldn't post a thing, but if I stopped at KFC on the old Kent Road, you get 15 photos, you know. But, you know, every, someone said of people's, you know, Instagram feed that everybody else is basically showing their stage presence while you're living life backstage. Yeah. You know, you've got all the props and the equipment and the wires tr tangling all over the floor, and they just step out into the limelight and take one picture of their toes facing the pool at the, you know, whatever it is, hotel. And But the very thing of language is we don't talk about what's representative. Yeah. You know, I always said that, you know, a lot of life is a bit like detective fiction or indeed, you know, true life detective work, which is... You write as though the whole thing happened in a linear sequential order because, you know, a detective fiction where you, you spent 76 pages talking about house-to-house -house inquiries that went nowhere, right, would be really boring and frustrating. But that's what reality's really like. Yeah. It's a whole load of dead ends and exploration that goes wrong and things you assume that never happen and so on. And then occasionally, you know, out of it just comes this tiny little trickle, which is yeah. your present-day reality. And... But the very invention of language before we had mass media and before we had social media was already messing with our heads because you talked about the guy who was attacked by a lion or possibly even more extreme, you talked about the guy who fought off a lion yeah. because it was really interesting and you didn't talk about the boring stuff. So as a result, the entire That's kind of mm. relative frequency of things in people's heads got messed up. Mm. Well, I, I actually think, and it, it, you, you may be partly responsible for this, <laughs> and here's, here's, here's what I mean. So if we say those two extremes are opposite ends of a spectrum, mm. um, and today most young people tend to be cynical, pessimistic, suspicious is really the term I'm, I'm going for about things. They would say a key part of that is definitely authority failing and government failing, but it's also branded. And the fact that they believe all brands lie. 
are trying to sell them something. And so it's led to this post-truth world where anything is anything because people can just say things and make things whatever, you know, whatever they want it to be, but using words. I wonder if that's why lots of young people are cynical. What would you say to someone who says, you know, all this branding, all this marketing, it's why I don't trust anything anymore. It's why we live in this post-truth world where anything can be anything if you just use the right words. Um, it's kind of interesting in the sense that this generally... I mean, there's a similarity, by the way, between branding and politics in that when I, you know, on the occasions when I've been into the Palace of Westminster, what you mostly see is people from a mix of political parties sitting around a table doing their best at trying to solve a problem. Now, they may not be solving the problem at the scale appropriate to its solution, which is a different matter. Yeah. But broadly speaking, the element of politics which is collaborative is never reported, and the element that's combative is... I agree. I'd also say that the same is true from 30 years in advertising, that when I've uh, gone into companies, I very rarely, uh, in fact, never in my own experience have I come across something which I regarded as downright evil or unpleasant. I have had reports of it. I mean, I heard, OK, the case I heard that was really dubious. Now, in fairness, they didn't do it. But someone suggested that, let me get this right. Um... It was a bank, not one of Ogilvy's clients, and it wasn't Ogilvy in the room, but there was someone from the advertising agency in the room when someone suggested that if you effectively changed a date on something, you could you, you could make a fortune out of bank charges because more people would end up going overdrawn. I, I, I'm just trying to remember how it happened, but there was some there was some scheme which is that you know which was effectively taking advantage of the disadvantaged. Yeah, which is a very very strong. Now, interestingly, even in that case, they didn't do it. Because at least brands, that Google thing of do no evil, I'm not, I'm not, you know, I'm slightly cynical of the fact that brands claim to be helping the planet. But broadly speaking, most brands are conscious of reputation risk of doing something that's downright horrible or evil and getting found out. Okay, so your investment in brand is a bit like an individual's investment in reputation, which is if you have invested in reputation, the cost of losing that reputation is sudden, instant, and uh, extraordinary, okay? So it's like a sunk cost thing. You've invested in building up a reputation for making good televisions. If you sell a load of televisions where the, you know, the plug adapter catches fire, it's really, really damaging to everything you've built so far. And so there is a kind of skin-in-the-game mechanism which does keep brands honest. At bay, yeah. Okay? The the organisations you've got to worry about are the ones that are secretive, not the ones that are famous, to an extent. Um, uh, even, as I said, even that bank didn't do it because it was a high street bank, okay? It was a pretty evil suggestion. It did get a little bit of consideration, but I think that got rejected. Mm. Um, I think, I also think that far more harm is done by probably misdirected good intentions in many cases than is actually done by people who are, you know, conspicuously, consciously evil. Um, I also tend to believe I tend to believe cover-up theories, but I don't believe in conspiracy theories simply because actually the you know nice conspiracy theory, but people just aren't that organised. 
mean, to be absolutely honest, you know, I mean, you know, the organisation required to have 15 people all plotting to kill JFK while keeping it secret, without it leaking, you know. I mean, it's not impossible. I'm just yeah. saying that... But cover-up theories, you get instant coordination because everybody has an interest in covering it up. Yeah. OK, so when someone says, I think this happened and they covered it up, I pay quite a lot of attention. When they say it's all a plan by lizard people who control Davos, to, yeah. I'm a bit more sceptical. I, I, I by the have... way, some of them are going to be true, just by the law of averages. Yeah, okay? absolutely, but most aren't. Yeah, This has been so fascinating. There's so much we could talk about. Of course, I know we have a hard time, so I just want to I I ask you... because people, people, are too, people are too negative, um, mm. uh, I think, um, in some respects. I mean... It's complicated because science, let's not forget science didn't have, you know, we've got to say this, science didn't come out of COVID Snow White. Mm. I mean, if that was a lab leak, then all science can claim is a, is a score draw over COVID, which is scientists managed to largely solve a problem which other scientists had created in the first place, mm. you know, by the exciting practice of collecting bat, bat shit from obscure caves, OK? They were wrong about things, you know, they, they, they were weird about cloth masks. They were completely wrong about airborne transmission for a long time. You know, it's, it's not an infallible means of making decisions when under time constraints, and you know the you know the you, for some time you were treated as a conspiracy theorist if you believed in the lab leak hypothesis. Yeah. When I would still say it's certainly not a ridiculous hypothesis given the circumstances. Okay, that's not a ridiculous thing to suggest. And suggesting there may be to limited numbers of people highly adverse effects to vac uh, of vaccination. That doesn't strike me as crazy either. It's, yeah. it's you know given the genetic variety you'll find in you know a billion people. It's very possible. Very possible. Okay. I'll, so, so you know, I mean, there, there were elements where, I mean, you know, I, I didn't genuinely believe that Bill Gates was trying to put a chip in me, nor did I think that 5G was causing the uh, viral infection. <laughs> they were all crazy. Lot. Uh, no, 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 I know. And there, I think you can reach this point where... And by the way, I don't think the mainstream media, to use a weirdly right-wing phrase, always helps, <laughs> in that it can, can become very sort of patronising. Yeah. You know, I think it's patronising over Brexit, for example. OK, you know, the uh, and you get this thing where Brexit voters were kind of represented as this sort of the kind of person who owns a bulldog and paints a Union Jack on it. Yeah, which was undoubtedly <laughs> it was undoubtedly a portion of the Brexit vote. Yeah. OK. But, you know, there, you know, there were, you know, um, you know there were Cambridge historians. There were, um, you know, uh, you know, uh, complexity physicists. Yeah, regretfully, a lot of my friends thought it was Brexit, and they're young, you know, black in southeast London, well, and they thought, yeah, let's let's see. So it's it's more complicated. I, I mean, than... by the by the way, um, the idea that you give um, uh, Europeans preferential immigration status over people from other countries. Yeah, some people uh, found is, that problematic. I, I, I had a problem with it. Yeah, uh, you know, I, don't, I mean, because in a way, if you speak English, you're not. A European country completely, okay? Because yeah. you know, if a sparrow farts in Idaho, you're more likely to watch it on TV than you know if half of an Italian city collapses. I mean, you know, we live our lives, you know, in a kind of weird Anglo-American world, don't yeah. we? And also, we, you know, we also live in in a world where, I mean, one of my one of my issues is that there's an asymmetry if you speak English, okay? Because there are, you know, twenty million, thirty million young people in Europe who can come and take my job. But if I moved to Poland, I'd be sweeping the streets because yeah. I don't speak Polish, right? 
Simple as that. It's fascinating. Okay, now nobody. No, I'm not. I'm not saying that's a decisive factor, but nobody mentioned that the fact that the fa- that an English-speaking country has an asymmetry because there are lots of people who speak the language well enough to move there, and it doesn't apply in reverse. Okay, you know, it would take me six years of living in Poland before I could do kind of white-collar employment in Poland. Mm. Okay. And the older you get, the harder it is. No, you, to could do argue, that you could argue that common, Commonwealth immigration is symmetrical, right? I mean, you know, I can, you know, I can, you know, I can in theory at least go and start an advertising agency in Australia or India or whatever. At least I, you know, I have the linguistic ability to do it, and they can come here. You can at least say, well, that is at least symmetrical. Yeah. So I did find the interesting statistic, which I thought was quite revealing of that, which is at the time of Brexit. There were. I voted Remain, by the way, but I just didn't like. I didn't like the um, the patronising media representation of Leave yeah. voters, and almost became a Leaver after the event because <laughs> I regarded the, the reaction of Remainers as hysterical and overblown. Yeah. I mean, you know, apart from this, it wasn't that important. Okay. What Brexit? No, I don't think it was that important. I mean. This is going to start a new podcast, but compared to invading Ukraine, compared to yeah. COVID, compared to what you might call events, okay. I mean, if you, I mean, if you did PPE, right? Yeah. You, you see these things that used to happen in Britain, like the Corn Laws and the Great Reform Bill, which yeah. divided people for like twenty-five years. Nobody's got a fucking. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I mean, in, in the great sweep of history, no one can remember what right. the hell they're think, all about. I think you're right. You know, I think yeah. if you zoom out enough, it, mm. it's inconsequential in, in terms of our kind of our country's larger story. Yeah, but uh, if you look at recent events, I, I, I mean, I, I, it's undeniable that the the Brexit has caused a, a major shock in just in a number of industries. I mean, I don't think we have the time to go into it. Um, and I actually think this would be a great topic for another conversation. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Mm. I just want you to, to, I want you to, to ask one final kind of question, which is really, you know, we've been, we've, we've been kind of flirting with young people during this whole podcast, but I would love you to speak directly to a stat that the World Economic Forum Reported from another Our study. Lizard overlords. No, 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 no. Yeah, 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 okay, it's yeah. actually about optimism and young people coming out of COVID. Uh, you know, a third of young people they survey, surveyed said that they were optimistic about, about the future. I find that quite shocking. Only a third were optimistic about the future um, for a number of different reasons. Maybe global tectonic shift in. Place. Uh, there's another thing to remember about young people, which is that improvements are slow and bad news is fast. Okay. Now, if you're my age, you know, I. I <laughs> just uh, one of the things you can say from the uh, the perspective. My dad's ninety three, um, right, and my dad does take considerable pleasure from things which young people take for granted. My children have never known an adult. Sorry, no, adult. They've never been conscious in a world where there was no internet. Okay, mm-hmm. when they were young, I took them to some holiday cottage for a weekend uh, where there was no Wi Fi. Dad, the internet's broken. Okay. Okay, they were small. I didn't say that. You know. But but uh, most of the things where you say life has got better have happened actually rather slowly. Mm. And you know, I mean, you know, if you want to take a longer historical uh, time frame, you know, um, you know painkillers, analgesics, dentistry. Okay, you know, uh, you know, undoubtedly the quality of life, and we probably don't appreciate it enough because, of course, when you're young, your frame of reference is just. The last five years, you've only been an adult, let's say, for five to ten years, and you've heard a lot of bad news stories in the press, and the press is biased towards bad news stories, partly because news tends to be bad, whereas trends tend to be good. Yeah. 
So, um, uh, but yeah, I, I would like to see a higher rate of optimism because I think there are genuinely reasons to be optimistic. Um, uh, you know, I, I, I mean, there are there are reasons to be very afraid, by the way, and I think we're not we're probably afraid of the wrong things as well. You know, I'm, I, you know, I was you know that whole asteroid threat. Okay, that's not an irrelevant thing. Okay. If you look at the, you know, okay, the likelihood is low, but the actual devastation would be spectacular. There are things we should be frightened of that we're not, undoubtedly. Yeah. Um, but we could carry on about the optimism thing. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, so the, the question was going to be about what you would say to somebody who feels as though, you know, yes, I'm living in this post-truth world, you know, it, it, nothing seems to be anything. I don't read the news. A lot of the people we speak to don't uh, don't read the news. You no. know, just don't trust it, so to speak. Don't trust big brands. Don't trust anything. How would you kind of encourage that kind of person to to be optimistic, even after COVID seems like it's set us back a bit? Uh, I think the pity is that I think you should always be twenty percent cynical. Okay, and you should always. It's very in some ways this is a manifestation of a healthy thing, which is to look at the same thing through different lenses. And we do tend to default, which I think the media has done, default to a standard lens. Uh, uh, you know, you know, the, the, the United States has, it probably has it worse than we do, which is you're either good or you're evil. OK, you know, it, it, it much prefers to divide things into black and white in that way. And, I, you know, I think that, you know, some of this sort of cynicism is possibly quite healthy because it's people actually saying, looked at through this lens, mm. we see this. You know, looked at through a completely different lens. Okay, um, uh, you know um, what I see is is different and maybe actually more more enlightening than the mainstream view. The only thing I think that becomes problematic is if when people become one hundred percent cynical. Mm. I think cynicism is a tool that you need to deploy and quite regularly, because you know as the old joke goes, just because you're paranoid doesn't mean they're not out to get you, <laughs> right? Okay, <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> But, That's a good <laughs> but, 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 but at the same time, you know, if, if, you, if you effectively try and lead a life with no anchor points whatsoever, and of course, you've, you know, many people have lost religion as an anchor, for example. You know, other people have lost sort of, you know, faith in, you know, communities perhaps used to provide a very nice self-correcting anchor when they are of a certain size. Um, and, it, you know, it, I think at some point you need to have, you know, uh, you need to have some fixed points, actually. And I think there is, what is weird is that people, and this does seem to be a bit, well, maybe it isn't, actually, but you do seem to have this phenomenon of people who've just, you know, there's a, there's a famous G.K. Chesterton quote where he says, the trouble with atheism is it's not that when you stop believing in God, you stop believing in God. He said it's when you stop believing in God, uh, you start believing in anything. Mm. And, you know, at some point, you have to, you know, at some point, going with the consensus, you know, even if it's arbitrary, in many cases, I mean, you know, you might argue if you're purely kind of uh, utilitarian, that religion worked because everybody believed the same untruth, which doesn't necessarily help their accuracy of perception, but does help coordinate a community. Yeah. OK. If, you know, if everybody believes the same story... And this is, I suppose, the interesting question on things like, you know, do you, questions like, for example, completely, you know, pissing on statues of Winston Churchill. 
you know, you, you know, that sort of thing slightly bothers me because, you know, we exi- we, you know, we require a kind of shared mythology to a degree. Yeah. Okay. In order to function as a, you know, as a diverse, you know, you need to have certain anchor points of belief. And that business where, you know, in, in many cases, I think extremely healthy reappraisal of past history is a good thing. But when it becomes a form of signaling that you, and what happened, Orwell spotted this, you know, when basically, you know, you know, people on the left would rather die than to stand up for God save the king, you know, that any form of patriotism is regarded as, you know, basically, you know, entirely um, poisonous. That, that gets problematic then, I think. Yeah. Because you, what, what you've done is you've replaced something which may have been deeply flawed and inaccurate. What you've done is just replace it with its opposite. You know, I mean, I don't know. I, I think this is a great country to live in. You know, you know whether you agree or disagree with the I government agree. in power. I think it's a pretty fantastic place for all kinds of reasons. And uh, ha, you know, you, 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 there's also a middle class thing, which is oh, of course, it's so much better in France. Look, trust me, it isn't. <laughs> right here, it's and, and this comes from people who go on holiday in France. Well, everything's better in the place you go on holiday because <laughs> you're on a holiday, right? <laughs> what you haven't had to do is try and get broadband installed in France or try and get planning permission for a kitchen extension. Or walk in through France. a riot whilst trying to get to work. You We're know, trying to get to work. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, no, no, absolutely, yeah, and, and um. And, you know, and you know, the, the, you know, British holidaymakers tend not to get beaten up by the police while they're in France. Yeah, that's a good you know, thing. And that, you know, that, that's, that's a, you know, if you think it's bad in Britain, that's a serious thing in France. Yeah. You know. Well, I mean, we could carry on. This has been fascinating, Rory. Thanks so much for joining us. And no doubt, you know, we'll, we'll have a, a second part to this conversation. Oh, no, I'd love that. <laughs> anytime. Anytime. <laughs> I want more than just a piece. Wanna be heard from the west to the east. I worked in my craft and I prayed for my time on the scene. The man have never left my team. 19, learned the right creed. Now I'm not a right breed, but I might be. In my crease, now kids hit up my G. I'll still never sell out my theme. Well, you know about heritage. You go inherited. Don't chill with the snakes, but the flow's still venomous. Perspective is everything. So much lemonade. I don't know what a lemon is.